yeah, I'm, I'm ready. Scooby-dooby-dooby-dooby-bye. Whoosh. Hello, and welcome to the Talk Business With Me podcast, brought to you by the School of Business here at Portland State University. I am Aki. And I am Michael. And we are so glad that you're here with us for the second episode. Yes, thank you for tuning back in. We are happy to have you. So, Aki, what did we do this week? This week, we had an interview with Dan Walensky. We also went to a vinyl shop. Yeah, it was cute. It was very cute. Yeah, we'll discuss more about that later. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of been our week, right? Nothing nothing too special. It's been a busy week. Midterms happened. Midterms has happened. How are midterms for you? All of my teachers decided to give us our midterm projects a week early so that we didn't get everything crammed onto us during midterms. But since all of my teachers did that, I ended up just having midterms a week early. So my midterms week has actually been pretty chill, but... I know a lot of people get really stressed out about that. So hopefully your exams all went great. Hopefully you got everything turned in. And we're glad that you're taking your valuable time to come listen to our podcast. Yeah, I hope you guys are eating. Like that. that's yeah. kind of important. Drink, Drink water. water. Yeah, we said that at the same time. It's kind <laughs> of important that you're taking care of yourself. So let's talk about this week's interview. Yes, let's discuss. We got to talk with Dan Walensky, a rather famous saxophone player. Um, And even though his name isn't super famous, the people he's worked with and the stuff he has recorded for, you've definitely heard of it. I guarantee every one of our listeners has heard of something that Dan has recorded for. Yeah, can you give me a run-through of just a couple names? Dan has played with Ray Charles, Joan Baez Santana, Steve Winwood, David Bowie. Wow. What about, like, TV shows? He recorded for Hairspray, he was on The Tonight Show. Uh, he recorded for ESPN, Sports Center. Wow, so pretty big names here. Yeah, no, he is a legitimate player in the music industry. That's really impressive. And he has a lot of great insights, a lot of great information about what it's like working as a professional musician. He's also a composer and arranger. Right, right. And also just all around a fascinating human being and really fun to talk to. I thoroughly enjoyed the interview with Dan Walensky. I didn't honestly know what to expect just because I don't really know much about saxophones or like saxophone players Mm -hmm. but through this interview I really got great insight like he was naming such big names in the music industry that I'm just like what how even how am I having such a casual conversation with someone that's just such Mm -hmm. a huge influence in the music industry and it was very casual Super casual. Dan is a very casual person. He's very easy to talk to, and he's very down-to-earth. So even though, you know, he's talking about his time recording for Ray Charles or Santana, he just makes it sound like any other experience, and it was it was a really fun interview. So let's get into it. Let's go. Zoom into the next part. Maybe give us, like, a quick who are you? What are you, what have you been up to? <laughs> what do you do? Well, my name is Dan Walensky, and uh, let's see, I'm a musician and composer, and I've been doing it uh, my whole life, professionally, since I was about 17 years old. And uh, what am I doing now? Well, 
The music business changed so much that that's a hard answer to give you, but maybe we'll get into that. Oh, we certainly will. Yeah. So some context for the listeners. I was one of Dan's students on saxophone for a number of years, and he has so many cool stories to tell, truly a wealth of knowledge. So I'm excited for you guys to get to hear some of the great stuff that he has done in his life and some insights into the music industry. We're definitely going to get into that. So you've done a ton of really cool gigs, had a ton of adventures in music. I don't remember a thing. (laughs) (laughs) For the sake of time, if you could give us maybe like a top three people who you've played with and maybe just a quick overview of what that was like. Sure, sure. Well, it's hard to do uh, also because uh, there's so many. I mean, I really have been lucky to play with so many fabulous musicians and superstars, leaders, band leaders, uh, and uh, composers, producers, and musicians. I mean, thousands of them, literally. And um, each one is different. And most of them are really cool in their own way. So it's a really hard thing to pick three. <laughs> but I'll give you a, a three uh, pretty darn impressive ones, at least to me. I can't still believe that I got a chance to play with these people. But my first gig out of high school was with the great Ray Charles. And that was a life-changing experience for me. Um, I was 18, just turned 18, and suddenly on the road with one of the greatest performers and musicians and uh, composers of all time. And uh, with all older guys, <laughs> I was the uh, by far the youngest. And um, that, uh, that was really school. And the lessons that I learned on that tour you know, still stick with me today. I, I think it's been pretty much downhill since then. <laughs> An amazing gig to have right out of school. Another one that sticks out is touring with Steve Winwood uh, in 1986. That was really cool because we played for so many people. Steve Winwood, a uh, legend from Traffic uh, in the 60s and his own albums after that, of course, and millions of other bands like Blind Faith. Uh, Steve uh, was an icon that came back in the 1980s, did some albums that were very, very popular, but really hadn't toured as a a leader until this big album came out in 1986 called Back in the High Life, and that was the tour we did. I had never been on a tour where it was the top album in the world, and the the crowds were, were sellouts everywhere we went. We could have toured for years and sold out every venue. It was that type of thing. But that tour, that particular tour, was six glorious months, and um, uh, people came out of the woodwork from his old life, from the 60s. Uh, Elton John flew in with his band on a helicopter to one of our shows in L.A. You know, Joni Mitchell came out, Quincy Jones, to see Steve Winwood perform. So I got to meet all those people and had an amazing time. Uh, let's see, three, a third one. How about something more obscure? Uh, sure. I, I had the privilege of playing with a band called Slickophonics, which was a kind of jazz, funk, out there, avant-garde, cool thing with uh, Mark Helias, a brilliant bass player, and Ray Anderson, one of the great uh, trombone players ever. And uh, no one knew us in the United States. We did no gigs in the United States, but we were superstars in Europe. (laughs) So uh, our picture was on the cover of Paris magazines, and we opened for Jimmy Cliff in Stockholm, and just had an amazing time playing really cool music 
all throughout Europe. Two or three times, did an album which did really well there. Again, didn't sell one copy here in the United States, but uh, that's obscure jazz for you. It will uh, be uh, accepted in in some countries, but not others. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, those are are a few of the things. Yeah. So I'd like to get into more of your early career when you first started out as a saxophone player, gigging mm. professionally. You said you've been professional since about seventeen. Yeah. So going back to the beginning, what was that like? trying to get into being a professional musician? That's a really good question because it's changed so much. So back in those days, um, in the 70s, uh, things were very different. The biggest difference was there weren't as many musicians. <laughs> there were a lot of musicians, but not like now. The internet and music schools have bred so many musicians and there's less places to play than ever now. Back in those days, there were all kinds of places to play and not that many saxophone players around, for instance, in the Bay Area where I grew up, in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, that could fill the gigs. So there, were pl there was plenty of work for everybody. Mm. That's number one. Mm -hmm. So even in high school, you know, a kid that could play and showed up could get a gig. <laughs> <laughs> and but that wasn't all there was to it um you had to like in any business know people number one and fortunately our high school was really happening in terms of connections and uh, it was a public high school but with a big emphasis on the arts and music okay. and uh, there was a lot of networking going on uh, in the city and in the environment uh, the uh, bay area in general so we would sit in places, we were going to competitions like you did, Michael, mm -hmm. uh, and winning the competition. So we got our pictures in the paper. People knew about us hotshot kids at the <laughs> high school. And so people came to me sometimes and say, hey, Dan, can you make this gig? You know, come on down. I said, gig, what? <laughs> you recruited. Okay. Yeah, here and there for different things. And then I would go sit in and I'd have some success. I'd pick up numbers and held on to people's phone numbers, called them up and say, hey man, you got another thing I could do. I would love to come out and play. So this is where music gets into the music business. Two very different things. Music business is like any other business just networking, yeah. showing up, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, being there, sort of the um, energy and the perseverance of not quitting no matter what happens, like always putting yourself out there and learning from your mistakes, right. learning, for instance, the songs you didn't know when you come and sit in and whatnot. So that was a good start. And I was studying with the great Joe Henderson, a saxophone legend, and that didn't hurt. And I began to get more and more gigs. And uh, though I was going to high school, trying to graduate, <laughs> right. I uh, was also street playing. And back in those days, 30, 40 bucks an hour playing the saxophone was a fortune. And uh, all those things sort of conspired to get me ready to go on the Ray Charles tour when I picked up that gig right after high school. So it was a whirlwind of stuff. <laughs> so did you go to college or was it straight from high school to gigging? I went right from high school to the Ray Charles tour and uh, I had gotten a scholarship to the Eastman School of Music before that and they deferred the uh, entry to the school for me because they heard that I was going on the road with Ray Charles and that was good for them too. It was good for the school mm -hmm. to have a kid that was, yeah. you know, in the real world. 
So I went uh, in the uh, spring semester for a little while, about uh, two or three months, and didn't uh, really last there long, partly because I didn't go to class and I hung out at the music library and got together graduate bands and played gigs in Rochester, New York, and uh, sat in on graduate classes because I was ready to um, move to New York and do my thing. New York was very close by to Rochester, so I hightailed it down there and began my real career. So. I was a child of academia, too. My dad was a professor of sociology and political science at Berkeley, so I had kind of had enough of university life uh, mm -hmm. by the time I uh, graduated. But uh, th to those of you out there uh, that are in school, stay in school. <laughs> it's changed. The advice that I give to uh, my students now, my kids, is uh, it is uh, so much harder to make a living at the music business now. It's easy to get your stuff out there because of the internet, mm -hmm. but it's just an overstocked business with a model that's been busted apart by the free internet. So anyway, I ramble, but that's kind of connected to the uh, beginning, which was such a different environment in a different location, and that's key, the environment where you happen to land at the time frame that you happen to land is as important as anything else. So you're a saxophone player, but you'd probably be offended to be called a jazz saxophone player. Pretty much. I'm a musician. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love all kinds of music. I feel like there's this stereotype amongst people not in the jazz or saxophone world to associate the saxophone with the 40s, 50s, and 60s big band and bebop music. But could you talk a little bit about the other aspects of saxophone, some of the stuff that you've done outside of specifically jazz? Sure, sure. Well, I grew up playing other forms of music. In the Bay Area, the biggest uh, bands uh, were bands like Tower of Power, which is a funk band. And people like Janis Joplin were big in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. Jimi Hendrix, of course. And concerts uh, that I went to were rock and roll, Country Joe and the Fish is one of the first bands I remember. My brothers played guitars and sang Beatles songs and, and I grew up with all kinds of music. So that's first and I ended up playing all kinds of music. So I never saw it as a saxophone equals jazz type of thing. So when I went out to play, it was playing the song it was playing the right thing for the band. It was whatever the music required. Mm -hmm. And that might require jazz elements or not. I ended up, uh, when I moved to New York, playing literally all kinds of music. I was in a country western band, a western swing type band. We played a rodeo. I was in serious music stuff uh, where I had to read crazy difficult uh, music for uh, concert halls, mm. uh, not jazz related at all. It was a composer's vision and we did uh, nutty vision stuff on uh, these avant-garde composers. Uh, what else did we do? Everything, every type of music, funk, lots and lots of R&B gigs. I ended up playing with the Four Tops and the Temptations. A lot of different rock and roll gigs and every, every other type of music under the sun. I, I played with a Brazilian uh, guitar player for a whole summer and at literally all over the map. And in studio work, which I did a lot of, uh, I did thousands of jingles and uh, you know advertising music and I did uh, lots of sessions for movies and a couple hundred records. And so that was all over the map too. Every kind of music that's ever been uh, invented uh, 
we uh, touched upon it. <laughs> Could you give us a couple examples of movies or TV shows you played on that people might recognize? Sure, sure. One of my favorites was uh, John Waters' uh, Hairspray, the one with uh, Rachel Sweet singing the lead song, and I got to play on that. And uh, I played on a chorus line, the musical soundtrack, a bunch of others. And did you say records? Sure. Oh, yeah. yeah, well, man, all over the map. Santana, and wow, my mind is going blank. There's just too many. But yeah, you got to look me up on the internet. I can't uh, talk mm -hmm. about myself anymore. I do recommend <laughs> looking up. It's an impressive resume. <laughs> so since you're done talking about yourself, we can move over to talking about the music industry a little bit. Yeah. You alluded to the fact that the music industry has changed a ton since you were first getting into it to where it is now. Yeah. If you had to pick out some of the main trends that are new or just emerging, either good or bad, uh, what would those be? Yeah. Well, we touched upon some of them. The advent of the internet has been a double-edged sword for musicians and composers. Uh, one of the biggest changes is that there's an entire generation that's grown up on free music. They expect to download free music. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't the case back then. It was a uh, record company model where you signed a contract and you got uh, residuals. And unions were bigger then. So the, I was in the musicians union, for instance. That has been weakened uh, quite a bit, that business model. So uh, musicians don't make as much money doing the same things that they did. Uh, mm -hmm. in the past. So that's, first of all, the entire business model changed with the internet. And it made it harder, as you pointed out, Michael, to, to monetize your own material. When you write a song, uh, the residuals have gone down in uh, value because of mm -hmm. uh, that same thing. So that's the biggest uh, reason. As James Joyce, the great philosopher said, here comes everyone. Um, you know, there's a good thing, like the gold rush. The music business is like the gold rush. Mm -hmm. And everyone rushes out, and those that have good equipment do better, those that have luck do better, and those that are, have perseverance do better, and they get more gold, and, and those, then it's over. And those that own hotels do really well. <laughs> hotels? What? <laughs> And then so oh, many yeah, people okay, okay. go out to uh, blow out the gold in, in the hills uh, that there's none left after a certain point and everybody goes bust. It's a little like that. A lot of folks, uh, and like I said, less places to play. Um, COVID really did a number on it. Um, musicians had been through uh, recessions and wars and all kinds of pestilence, you know, um, before that. 9-11 uh, was big in New York. That killed the music business for a little while. Different governments have killed music here and there throughout the world. But this was bigger than any of that that I've been through in my life. Uh, COVID stopped tours, uh, giant pop tours. Yeah. So Harry Styles, for instance, had to cancel his tour three times over the course of a year and a half. That's remarkable. Um, and so he couldn't pay his band, even though he has to keep paying his band to keep them, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, right down to the uh, kid coming out of high school who is trying to get a gig, and there are no gigs because all the clubs are closed and all the tours are stopped in Europe. And that was that way for quite some time. And the problem is 
we feel now, oh, we're out of that. But a lot of the clubs and tours and studios and all that never came back after COVID. It was just too hard to keep going. And some of the business models, uh, for instance, a jazz club, it's very hard to uh, sustain that when there's uh, two or three years of no revenues. Mm. So a lot of those went under. So there's less places uh, now than before and more musicians again (laughs) than ever. So those are are huge tectonic changes in the way things work. A little depressing, but I will tell you that there's great things that happen with it because of the internet, where you get these incredible surprises. Michael, you can tell me, who was was that guy? Jacob Collier. There is an internet sensation that uh, everyone should hear. And, uh, you know, it's old hat. He's been around for a while, but I wouldn't have known about him uh, unless uh, one of my students had uh, turned me on to uh, this guy. Mm-hmm. And I'm blown away. It's, he's one of the greatest musicians I've ever heard. So the, the Internet is a beautiful place, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. So it just kind of sounded like there's a surplus of musicians but there's not enough places. of good musicians and of the good musicians the other right. thing is the music schools have pumped out superb musicians right um on mass i mean there are more music schools uh, than ever and more people in music schools than ever and that mm-hmm. is uh kind of doing a disservice because uh, when they leave the cocoon of the music school they uh have no place to play so So you likened the music industry to the gold rush. (laughs) Most history buffs would remark that the only people that really made it rich due to the gold rush were the people selling mining equipment and (laughs) food and hospitality Mm. in the California area. Mm. Is there any sort of parallel in the music industry of people just making money (laughs) hand over fist on this influx of musicians? Absolutely. Well, right now, uh, the chairman of uh, Spotify and back in the, uh, when I came up in the um, uh, late 70s and early 80s, uh, it was the record company executives and uh, producers. And sure, musicians have never done as well as the uh, top brass in the companies. It's always been a, a multi-tiered model. But uh, occasionally somebody ends up owning the shop. In other words, musicians that rise to the, the place of true leadership, start their own labels and whatnot. Uh, Madonna would be one of those people. I played with her also. Um, she always had control of her business and mm-hmm. ended up, uh, of course, with Maverick Records. And that uh, was a huge success, And let alone selling quadrillions of her own albums. But she, mm-hmm. she owned her uh, music. So... You mentioned that you write a lot of music. You're also a composer in addition to yeah. a musician. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the compositional side of things, both sure. business and also your experience? Yeah. Uh, back in the old days, I signed a contract. Everybody seemed to be signing a contract, a record contract. I ended up uh, not making the record for that producer because they ended up wanting to make me uh, their new Kenny G. <laughs> And I was not into that, so I let the contract lapse and ended up putting out, over the years, seven of my own releases. So I did independent uh, releases on that. Meanwhile, though, I've been composing for other people for a long, long time. I've composed some jingles and some things that ended up on TV and uh, TV theme type stuff. And then also have written for other people, so arranged music for other people that Mm. asked me to arrange uh, their albums or like that. But basically underlying my whole music career. So I'd be working with somebody and did composing with that. uh, So playing 
and composing at the same time with those different situations. And then I wrote a lot of songs for the bands that I was uh, playing in as well, um, the live bands that I was playing in. So a few of them ended up on records and that I had no, no big hits or uh, you'd probably have to wait for an interview with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. But always a little bit of uh, income stream on the side uh, from that. Uh, more in the 80s and 90s where I was doing more commercial work um, with uh, advertising and uh, TV stuff. Um, that was more of a living in the, in the music industry. Nowadays, you can still do that. But again, it's more crowded. Uh, video games are big. Um, when you write music mm -hmm. for video games, that's a, a very good living for a composer or a musician these days. So there's another, another thing that didn't even exist in the old days. That wasn't really a viable model in the Pleistocene period that I come from. <laughs> so for young musicians who are trying to find a career and find their place in the music industry, what do you think it takes to make a living at being a musician? Get a degree in coding or microbiology. Yeah. I was not expecting to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I jest, but also uh, serious about that. It's if you're a musician nowadays, a young musician in high school, and you're thinking about your college options, or you're in college now, and you're thinking about what the hell am I going to do after college? If you're a musician that, quote, has it, you know, in other words, you got the goods, you'll know it. If you think you're ready to move to New York and make a living being a musician, you'll know it. If you have to think about it twice, like, oh, how am I going to make a living? <laughs> you know, maybe I should do this instead. Maybe I should do, you know, a degree in, um, in accounting uh, so I can make a living doing that and then I can play the music that I want. That's perfectly fine. But that's that question that you're asking yourself. That's your answer. <laughs> mm -hmm. you, you will not think twice if you're ready to go out and work as a musician, if you want to tour and, you know, try and get gigs on, you know, with uh, different people and uh, write music and whatnot for a living. And that's why I say I, I would not particularly recommend that. It's brutally difficult. But if you got it, man, go ahead, right on, you know. Once in a while, I have a student who I think has the goods that could go on to it. Michael is one of them. He's got a wow, beautiful <laughs> baritone sound. Really? But Michael is smart. He is so diversified. He's got all kinds of things going on and makes his living from a variety of different things. But he could at any point decide that he just wants to play the baritone saxophone and I think he would do extremely well. <laughs> I appreciate the vote of confidence, I really do. But like you were saying, I kind of came to a point in my musical career where I had to ask myself, is this how I wanna make a living? Don't get me wrong, I love music, I love playing music, I love playing the saxophone, I would never stop that for anything. Good. But talking to people in the industry like Dan and some of the professors at PSU and gigging professionals that I got to meet, I was hearing a little bit about the lifestyle of what it's like to be a working musician. Yeah. Usually you're on the road a lot. You're always putting out new material, always chasing gigs where you can find them. You're only as good as your last gig. And I kind of had to sit down and ask myself, is that really the lifestyle I want? Yeah. And the answer I came to was probably not. Yeah. So where I'm at now, I'm studying marketing at PSU. Uh, I have a newfound love of data analytics. Oh, which that is new. 
It's a <laughs> great way to make a living, apparently. Excellent. And um, I would very much enjoy playing music on the side and making my own music. But rather than doing that for money, I can just do it for myself. I can do mm. it for the fun and enjoyment of There's music. There's so many ways to do that. And yeah, that's... I would say that's a, a really beautiful model, man. Yeah, the other just doing music can be very limiting also. I mean, I've always loved other things besides music, and I find that that's really done my music a lot of good. In other words, I'm a better player because I like gardening. So when I was taking lessons from you, you often remarked about how being a well-rounded person makes you a better musician. I have a lot of hobbies, and you always encouraged me to pursue those hobbies because you said it will find its way back into my music. That's exactly right. Can you elaborate on that, maybe on the philosophical side, about how music really is a holistic art and oh, yeah. every life experience kind of ties into being a musician? Well, there was music on Earth before there was humans. There's music in nature oh, okay. uh, right. before we were ever here, number one. So there's rhythm in space and in uh, water and in the forest and in the air. So if you tap into that, you know, that's much bigger than us, that the world, the, world. <laughs> the universe <laughs> is much bigger than us. And the rhythm is already there for you to tap into. And the melodies are all around. Then you combine it with your own experience, stuff you've heard. And if you get a chance to travel and experience different cultures, that's got to play into it. So the combination of what was here before we were here and what we've created and then regurgitated back to ourselves <laughs> is really what it's about. Now, making sense of that whole mess is the hardest thing to do because there's so many influences now, partly again because of the web, and uh, you can hear anything anytime and we have so many different ways of listening to music. That's another element to it. I had a music teacher who was a Brazilian percussionist, and what he said was that rhythm is just any repeating sound, basically. Sure. Anytime you have a frequency or a cycle that repeats, that's rhythm. And so if you look at anywhere, like everything has a cyclical nature to it. The earth is spinning, the planets are orbiting. There you People go. have this rhythm of breathing in and out, your heartbeat, uh, even like your circadian rhythm of waking up in the morning and, and going to sleep. The life cycle of humans, the perpetual impermanence of all things. Dang, you should it, put that in a book, man, wow. come on. <laughs> it's like everything has these cycles and it's all rhythm. Everything has rhythm. And so this concept of rhythm is so deeply ingrained into the nature of life itself that it is basically inseparable from being alive. To be alive is to experience rhythm. Hell, who needs saxophone? Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I kind of took that to heart. I thought that was the first time I'd ever heard that sort of uh -huh. philosophy about music. Sure. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah, yeah. It helps to uh, tap into um, all aspects of the world of life, of nature. You know, I would say just uh, long hikes in the beautiful Oregon uh, wilderness have done me a world of good in my music and just uh, clearing my head out so I can uh, hear. So while we're kind of in the weeds of this philosophy, I want to talk a little bit about inspiration. Oh, yes, and good question. The idea that as a musician, you have to almost constantly be creating new stuff. And if you're trying to make a living as a musician, sometimes 
whether or not you can eat dinner is based on whether or not you can create more music. <laughs> so uh-huh. Uh-huh. I would love to hear a little bit about where your inspiration comes from, where you find inspiration, and maybe like some examples of the unlikely places that you found inspiration. Yeah, well, I mean, we were just talking about some of them being tapped into the universe. But, I, you know, this is a funny thing for me, uh, this, the inspiration. Well, a lot of it has come from listening to records and listening to musicians. Uh, tons of my inspiration has come from that. Like most musicians, we're inspired by music we hear. From early, the early days, I remember uh, listening. Uh, my brother uh, gave me John Coltrane's Soul Train when I was, uh, I don't know, about eight years old. And it, I'd never heard anything like that before. And so I wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wanted to play like that. But inspiration for me has come mainly two ways. When I'm writing a song, it is a feeling that I've got to get something out. <laughs> I've got to express myself. And I've had that same feeling since I was about three. I remember back then it was drawing, visual art, and that's what I thought I was gonna do. I was gonna paint and draw, and I loved clay. And so that's how that manifested. But when I woke up in the morning, I, as long as I can remember, and I remember three, four years old, that's where I lived. I, that's the first thought I had is to make something in the morning. <laughs> that's what I wanted to do. It's all I wanted to do at school, make stuff, write stuff later on. I loved writing. I wrote a lot of poetry and books and, and whatnot in grade school. I loved writing. And the same happened for music. And so it's always been this feeling. And I don't know whether I was born that way or just all the influences that were happening, like I said, in the Bay Area back then, all the great music that was going on. And my family, everybody played an instrument. My dad was self-taught trumpet player and singer and piano player. And he played in the Air Force bands in World War II. My mom was a violin genius. So there was a lot of music going on in the house at all times. So it was just this feeling of creation, you know? That's number one. The other thing that inspired me throughout my career is something completely different. Uh, It's the same thing that Cole Porter said inspired him. A deadline, a gig. You gotta compose this piece of music by Thursday (laughs) and turn it in and it'll be on the air. The financial incentive, you'll get paid X amount for doing this. Mm. 100% inspiration. Boy, does that get me going. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. So the combination of the art like that and the commerce have always been, you know, juxtaposed for me. And I would say in equal doses at any given time. My favorite composing is songs that are there in the morning uh, after a night of sleep, like I compose in my sleep and the song is there when I wake up. Pretty rare that that happens, but man, they're usually really good. (laughs) Mm. So good that when I compose a song that way, I always check on the internet and make sure I haven't stolen something. (laughs) I've had that moment a few times where I write something and I'm like, wow, this is awesome. I'll show it to somebody and they're like, you know, I've heard that before. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like now I'm just curious, like what are some projects that you're working on these days? Like what are you up to? Yeah, getting uh, my oldest into college. Okay. (laughs) 
There you go. It's an endeavor. <laughs> yeah. I think we can both speak from experience. Yes. Thinking about actual retirement, which musicians are not supposed to do. Actually, this is a really good thing to talk about. Man, why shouldn't musicians retire? Well, they say, you know, if you're a real musician, then you'll keep on going. And I, I don't know about that, man. I've, I've done there and been there, done that uh, to a certain extent. I don't want to sound jaded, but there's other things to do, man. I want to travel without a saxophone in my hand, totally. you know? I want to see some places and go see other music in, you yeah. know, like Africa. Like, I always wanted to get to Mali. Can't go there right now. There's some wars going on there but uh brazil is on my list and you know you can tour doing that i could do that but uh i'd rather uh, be an audience member for a little while i'm feeling that i'll always play you die yeah. playing for sure right i want to do more writing you know as time goes on but right now i'm just doing little gigs here and there and uh if the phone rings i say yes <laughs> and <laughs> i teach uh that's one of my main things i've got uh, at any point a stable of uh, students and uh, also show up at colleges and uh, high schools to corrupt the youth yes <laughs> fill their heads with dreams of being a musician <laughs> yes yes <laughs> so you've had a very long career and I'm sure that in the music industry, which is fraught with pitfalls, there have had to have been times where you considered quitting. Ah. And so <laughs> I wanted to ask what almost made you give up music and what got you through it? Oh, that's, a, that's really a good question. I've never been asked that before. No, I've never considered giving up until now. <laughs> and that's more of a lifestyle choice of the way the business has fallen right now. So it's a good time to get out as it were, or at least not tour relentlessly and try and gig relentlessly. But uh, no, I've had, uh, I've quit several situations, you know, that I had done for too long. Um, you know, I had done gigs and I was done with it. Even on the Ray Charles gig, they gave me the choice of coming back. And I was already going to the spring semester at Eastman School of Music. And so I said, no, I checked a little box on a postcard and sent it back and said, no, I'm not going back on the tour. I had done the Ray Charles tour very happily and I was moving on to other things. That was a hard decision. I remember getting together with a roommate uh, and talking about it all night. Like, what would be the right thing to do here? Go back on tour with Ray Charles or head down to New York and I'm glad I chose what I did. So, uh, but no, I've never, I never through all those years, really 40 years altogether, never considered uh, another career or quitting or anything like that. No, just kept on, on going and it, it worked out. I mean, there were slow times here and there, you know, it's famine and feast in the music business, but you know, it seemed like something would always come up. <laughs> Sometimes it took more effort than others. I would have to get out there again as if I was, you know, 17 again and, uh, you know, go sit in and audition. And But after a while, your reputation or your contacts uh, take care of themselves and some calls come in from somewhere. Recommendations happen and people know what you can do. And then your past catches up with you and they say, oh, that guy, no. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, like I say, I feel like hard work paid off, but that I was also very lucky and cannot uh, trade it for anything. Like I, the career that I had doesn't exist anymore is the bottom line. A lot of cats from my era will tell you that. It's just the early days were, were unmatchable. They don't even have a, a band like 
Ray Charles is going around, you know, 17-piece mm-hmm. big band touring the world. <laughs> it doesn't uh, exist. Ray Charles doesn't exist anymore. But um, anyway, that's the beauty of music also. It's on record. It's on the internet. And it lives forever. So Ray, just to take this example, is as alive to me as he ever was. Like, I hear him in my head, you know. And um, I have all his records, so. (laughs) I think that's a lovely place to leave our time together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it has, really. Holy cow, that interview was really something It was fun. I enjoyed that. It was really fun. It was really casual. It was very easy. Like I, I've obviously never met Dan before, but I mm-hmm. felt like he was like my bro after that interview. It was as you heard in the interview. I do know Dan quite well, but he's also super easy to talk to. And that studio we were in, for the listeners, when we recorded this podcast, we ended up going to Dan's house, and he has this little studio, recording studio in his basement, and it's super cozy, kind of homey, bunch of posters of all of his adventures up on all the walls. It's filled with musical instruments and old CDs and stuff that he's played on. Lots of memorabilia from his career as a musician. So it's got some really cool vibes. What was something that really stuck with you, Michael, from that interview? One of the things that I felt like we really connected on, which goes back to what we were talking about in our lessons, is the fact that rhythm really is kind of everywhere. Yes. And talking about how being a well-rounded human being also makes you a well-rounded musician really kind of stuck with me. And it's a philosophy that I really take into my life that in all aspects of your life, you end up being better by improving yourself as a well-rounded human being. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, he was tying that to the music industry specifically in that interview, but I think in general, like I'm not in the music industry, I'm business, right? Mm-hmm. I think that in general, people becoming a well-rounded person just not only benefits yourself, but benefits everyone around you too. And so that really stuck with me as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think also his him just talking about nature out of nowhere, how there's rhythm and music everywhere, if you listen to it, right? Yeah. The trees, the ocean, the water, just the wind, the air. Everywhere you go, there's music if you tap into it. Mm-hmm. And now I'm super aware of... <laughs> oh, no, you're, you are not going to be able to look at the world the same way ever again. No, with the, with what he was saying, I was like, my mouth was open the entire time. I was just speechless. He was just preaching such beautiful philosophy. I couldn't help but begin to be more aware of my surroundings, perhaps. Yeah, that's down for you. Now I'm just like listening to the trees rustling in the wind. And I'm just like, what's the rhythm here? Trying to tap into my music theory that I failed so bad at in high school. Oh, yeah. I'm sure everyone has an opinion on (laughs) high school music theory. (laughs) But speaking of Immaculate Vibes, this week's small business. We went to a vinyl shop located on East Burnside and 32nd Avenue. It is called Music Millennium. And let me tell you, they have some Immaculate Vibes. First of all, talk about cozy. Oh, yeah. And organized somehow? Oh, yeah. I was really surprised. For the amount of records and CDs and cassette tapes that they have in that store, it is somehow easy to find what you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah, so there's three floors, kind Mm -hmm. of. There's at least, you know, we walked three times upstairs. First section is all used uh, CDs or vinyls. Next section is 
just more new music, newer albums. And I mean, I walked away spending $83 on CDs. So tell us about what CDs <laughs> you got, Aki. Well, okay. I got Tyler the Creator. I got Arctic Monkeys. I got Harry Styles' Fine Line album. I got Wallows. And I got Lana Del Rey. I had to get Lana. You got to get, get Lana. I, of course you got to get Lana. They also had a lot more niche stuff. They I did. typically fall into the more like jazz fusion realm of music is the stuff that I mostly listen to. But they had a lot of Frank Zappa CDs, Tower of Power, Weather Report, like all the jazz fusion stuff that I love. They had all of that as well. A lot of great classic jazz albums in there. A lot of like 90s hip hop stuff. They had like a whole 90s hip hop section, which was cool. I think really there's something for everyone there. I think when I usually go to music shops or vinyl stores, I have a hard time finding CDs that I'm currently listening to, like artists I'm currently listening to. What usually ends up happening is I'm just finding super, super, super old music that like my dad used to listen to when he was a kid, which is totally fine. But this shop had everything. And when I mean everything, I literally mean everything. You really did get the sense that if you were looking for a CD, they would have it. Yeah. And in addition to having a little bit of something for everyone, it also had this super welcoming, inclusive vibe to it. It was very Portland. They were selling Portland stickers in their little, in where the cashier register was. They also had posters and they toys. Did. And, and socks. And socks. Socks. Mm -hmm. They had socks. But the point is, is that it's just a really, really good shop, and it really feels like Portland. Mm -hmm. So if you're in the need to go buy some Arctic Monkey albums, or if you want more vinyls or whatever it is, if you want to go find Taylor Swift, they had Taylor Swift there. They had like, a lot of Taylor Swift. They there. did have a lot of Taylor Swift. Go check it out, guys. Or if you're just looking for a place to enjoy music, they had record players set up for you to just pick a vinyl off the shelf, set it down, and they had some really nice headphones you could put on and listen to it. What, they did? Yeah. You didn't see that? No. It was kind of in the back on the Where third level. Where was I? I think you were looking at Arctic Monkeys. But yeah, if you love music and you want to hang out in a cozy place with other people who love music, I definitely recommend checking out Music Millennium on East Burnside and 32nd Avenue. So we are coming to the end of our time together, but before you go... We still have SB News. SB News. Aki, what is happening this week? Yeah, so November 2nd in SMSU 327, the SB Career Center is holding their Speed Advice Resume Reviews event. Bring oh. your resume. You can get a career coach to look over it and give you feedback. That's right. November 7th in KMC 533, HRMA is having their Pizza and Movie Night event. In that same room, KMC 533 on November 8th, the Multicultural Business Student Association is having their resume workshop. On November 9th, from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., the SB Career Center is having their company visit with Daimler Truck North America. It will be held at Daimler Truck headquarters. So if you're interested in attending that event, make sure you sign up today. Next up, on November 14th, at room KMC 185, the SB Career Center is holding their career conversation event. The topic is LGBTQ plus IA. Lastly, November 15th in KMC 465, the SB Career Center is holding their careers in advertising and marketing panel. And that's all we have for you folks today. Yes, we hope you enjoyed our time together and we hope you tune in again two weeks from today. You guys better. 
I'm gonna be looking at the data analytics. <laughs> I'm just kidding.